0: Hey babes, Nicole here, back with another narration. This month's story was written by Nikki Esposito. Um, you can find her on Reddit at N-I-C-K-Y underscore XX. Um, so if you enjoy this, please be sure to check her out. We are big fans of her work. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. I shouldn't have returned to the little house on Briar Rose Drive, parts one through six. Seven months ago, I went home, home to Los Angeles County, to the little ranch-style shack where I'd lived until I was 11 and my family left the state. My childhood home was in a certain middle-sized suburb. There's a few nice parks there, a couple movie theaters, a mall, a highly regarded hospital, a school district that, by the mid-90s, had won so many awards that gentrification became a near-overnight phenomenon. I'm sure a few of you know exactly which middle-sized suburb I'm talking about. If you don't, here's another clue. 15 years ago, a child went missing there. It was national news for maybe 20 minutes in the early 2000s, post 9-11, pre-recession. The kid's name was Michael Wall. He was 11 years old, small, and asthmatic. A sweet little boy. On a Saturday in May, his mother gave him permission to walk to Atomic Videos, an independent movie rental joint with arcade games, so long as he promised to be back by five for dinner. At three that afternoon, passerby witnessed him, wearing his favorite red hoodie, climbing into a white 1998 Honda Civic driven by Kevin Gideon, the 30-something loner who owned Atomic Videos. Micah was never seen again. They searched high and low and found neither hide nor hair. Kevin Gideon was grilled by the cops. He swore he drove the kid home. He left him outside the little house. No one believed him. He'd always been a strange guy, Kevin Gideon, and the story he told the detectives was suspicious. He didn't remember which street Micah lived on, and the only details he could recall about the house he'd supposedly left the boy in front of was that it was white and had big windows. Half the houses in town fit that description. Micah's house was blue. The authorities were in the process of obtaining a warrant when Kevin Gideon was killed. It happened outside a 7-Eleven in Pasadena. Some local hero picked a fight with Kevin, Kevin responded, violence ensued, and Kevin was pronounced dead at Huntington Memorial three hours after, the back of his head connected violently with asphalt. His ten-year-old daughter Tiffany was sitting in the back seat of his white Civic, waiting for Kevin to return with Slurpees. I heard she ran to him. She watched him die. Then the saga came to a tantalizing but ultimately disappointing end. The police finally pushed through the warrant to search Kevin Gideon's apartment and video store, and balled in a crawl space between the ceiling and roof of Atomic Videos, accessible by dislodging a loose ceiling tile, they found Micah's red hoodie. His inhaler with his name and dosage sat in the front pocket. His body was never recovered. It became common knowledge that Kevin Gideon killed Michael Wall, and the case went cold. I had my own ideas. I'm a high-functioning schizophrenic. People get weird when I say so. They think they're going to say the wrong trigger word and send me up a bell tower with a semi-automatic. It's not like that. I'm not like that. Most schizophrenics are non-violent and, in fact, more likely to be victims of violence than the perpetrators. But I'll save that rant for another day. For now, let's stick to yes, I do hear voices, yes, I do occasionally experience visual hallucinations and no, these hallucinations have never driven me to purposefully harm myself or others. They do make it frustratingly difficult to assess my experiences prior to being diagnosed. Recalling childhood events is like trying to solve two different puzzles with the pieces all jumbled together. This one's real, this one was a hallucination, and a lot of the time it's impossible to know the difference. And it doesn't help that some of these pieces are missing. There are black spots in my memories. I've discussed this with schizophrenic online friends, memory loss is a somewhat common symptom. Michael Wall was my best friend. The second day of kindergarten, he grabbed the bounciest red dodgeball out of my hands. I kicked him in the shin. We were both sent to the principal's office. From then on, we were inseparable. I met Tommy, who played soccer with Micah, and Luke, who lived with his grandmother across the street from Tommy. The four of us formed a tight group. We'd spend afternoons and weekends playing Mario Kart or exploring Alistair Park, the tree-filled oasis in the city down the street from my house. We called ourselves the Four Grand Adventurers. We'd been raised on Nickelodeon and Goosebumps, but as our town was lacking in evil sorcerers and scientific experiments gone wrong, we had to content ourselves with battling the monsters in our imagination. We made do. We were resourceful children. We came up with our own mythology, our own fantasy world, with its own hierarchy of horrifying creatures. One of them, a spider-like creeper with long purple arms that shot poisonous quills like a hedgehog, lived in my closet. It was scared of chocolate milk of all things the powdery brown stuff that came in a tin with a bunny on it there were a bunch of them our imaginary monsters but to me they weren't imaginary i'd swear up and down i actually saw purple tentacles sliding like worms inching from my open closet door to the foot of my bed and i felt the shooting sting of needles striking my body shielded only by my knit pikachu blanket and the king of all monsters known simply to us as the demon lived under a warped old tree deep in Alistair Park. Alistair Park had a strange layout. The front portion was a playground, swings, Lego-covered play structure, tall metal slide. There was a basketball court and a softball diamond. Then, behind all that was an acre of trees, mostly oak. It was designed to be a mini forest nestled amongst the suburban grayness. But whoever did the designing hadn't thought to put in any footpaths and the city didn't maintain the area as well as they should have, so by the time I came around, thick weeds, discarded beer cans, and jutting roots made it a difficult place to enjoy. Teenagers went there to get drunk. We called it the forest. Micah and I got lost in the forest once. We were eight and it was getting dark. We ran in frantic circles for an hour or so and then we found the warped old oak tree. Embedded in an acre of graceful, healthy trees, it stood out. It had a sickly gray trunk, a yard thick, scraggly, naked branches threatening to impale eyes, twisted, exposed roots. Finally, sweaty and dirt-caked, we scuffled our way out. From that day on, we were terrified of the forest. The demon lived there, we told Luke and Tommy. I saw it. Micah said he saw it, too. It reached for us with thick, gray, scaly tentacles. It growled like a steam engine, flashing foot-long, rotten black teeth. It opened its glowing orange eyes, and in them I saw death and hatred. And we ran, just narrowly avoiding its grasping, putrid appendages. I've reached into my subconscious many times to extract my last memory of Micah. The best I've come up with is the two of us swinging in my backyard, him wearing his red hoodie, both of us giggling about some cartoon episode, Anything after that is hidden in one of those black spots. As hard as I try, I recall nothing of the day Micah disappeared. Apparently, I was playing in my backyard with Tommy and Luke. My teenage sister, Alicia, had been watching us. Then, we departed for Alistair Park to play hide-and-seek, which we did until dusk. We hadn't invited Micah to come along. We were mad at him because he'd ratted me out to a teacher for copying. That's what Tommy and Luke said. That's what Alicia said and according to my parents, that's what I said as well. The next memory I flip to, like an old slide projector, is that of the Children's Behavioral Health Center waiting room, sitting on a chair with my bags, waiting for my parents to pick me up. I'd been there for 18 days, and I was leaving with a diagnosis of childhood-onset schizophrenia. Because for weeks after Mike had disappeared, I woke up screaming. I told my parents I'd seen him die. The demon got him. He'd been at Alistair Park with us. We'd been playing hide-and-seek, and and we ventured too deep into the forest. A gray, warded tentacle shot out of the darkness and wrapped itself around his waist. Micah was dragged across the littered, weed-dense floor. And before I collapsed into hysteria, I saw the waning sunlight reflect off sharp, rotten teeth and the angry flash of bulbous orange eyes. I'd stopped bathing. I was afraid of our bathtub. I'd claimed blood flowed from the tap instead of water— I wouldn't sleep for days, scared of the flying things that would tap on my window late at night, tittering threats in an indistinguishable language. I couldn't focus at school, and I insisted. The demon was still out there. It was coming for Luke and Tommy and me. My parents drove me straight from the hospital to the airport. We were moving to Miami. That had been the plan since before Micah disappeared. My dad had grown up there and wanted to be closer to his family. And with all that had happened, my parents wanted to get me out of town as soon as possible. The change of scenery was good for me. Under psychiatric care, away from my hometown, and everything that reminded me of my vanished, presumed dead, best friend, the nightmare stopped. My therapist said I should get this all down, put it all in one place. Feel the emotions I needed to feel, write an ending to this strange, fucked-up chapter in my life. I needed closure, she said. I've consulted the journal I kept during that time period and somewhat reconstructed it, but I won't transcribe it directly. I was ranting and raving by the end. It's been nearly a year since the events of June 5th through 11th, 2017. My life's been great since then. I love my new job, and I've started working out in the morning and writing at night. I take my medication, I see my doctor, and I'm fully committed to controlling my disorder, as opposed to letting it boss me around. Yet still, I go back. Sitting at my desk in my Venice studio apartment grading math worksheets, my mind wanders. I'll find myself humming along to Mathilde's little rhymes. I imagine walking to my kitchenette, taking out the tub of Nesquik I still keep in the back of my cupboard, and pouring a thick line of brown powder at the foot of the coat closet. Or I'll come across a hedge of jasmine flowers and instinctively look to the sky for the shape of the moon. The memories elicit fear but also a rush of excitement, ecstasy, then longing. Because for those seven days, in the midst of my descent into psychosis, I was the real me. More myself than I've ever felt since I first left the little house on Briar Rose Drive. June 5, 2017. The decision to spend the summer in my childhood bedroom was made out of convenience more than desire. Our grandparents were dead, the Miami house was sold, My parents were in Europe for the summer, on a long-deserved vacation. They wouldn't be back until late July, when their new condo in South Pasadena was completed. I was supposed to move into my own apartment. I would finished college and found gainful employment. I was pious with my Halodiparol, and I hadn't had a psychotic episode in two years. My mother worried to the degree required of mothers, but she, my father, and I were in agreement that a 26-year-old adult should have her own space. Particularly, a 26-year-old adult about to start a new job. Come September, I'd been hired as a teacher's aide at Bayside Montessori in Santa Monica. If all went well and my condition didn't become too difficult to manage, I would begin applying to master's of education programs in the spring. I found the perfect apartment. The catch was I couldn't move in until the previous tenant's lease ended in August. Until then, if I wanted to live indoors, I had two choices— the first was to find a sublet on Craigslist. Two 40-something creeps offering me a stained mattress for free while staring inconspicuously at my ass later. I deigned that option moot. The second was to move back into my childhood home with my sister Alicia. We hadn't returned to the Briar Rose house since we left California, but we still owned the property. My dad didn't want to sell it. He wanted to knock it down, put up a mansion, and flip it for seven figures. Property values were skyrocketing and pre-recession. That's what everyone else on the block seemed to be doing. Each year, another post-war ranch-style shack was bulldozed. For the time being, he'd sized up the rental market for the neighborhood and put off his scheme indefinitely. That summer, though, there were no renters. The last family moved out in February, and my dad hadn't found a replacement. He was going to finally do it. When he and Mom returned, he planned on utilizing his father's life insurance payout to finally bulldoze the little house and put up a tasteful two-story Victorian. The plans were already drawn. I drove past my street. I was distracted by Alistair Park, down the block across Fifth Avenue, which ran perpendicular to Briar Rose Drive. The steel slide was still there. The Lego-colored play structure had been replaced. I don't remember there having been rings. But even the upgrade looked overused and sun-bleached. The sand had been replaced with spongy black turf. Beyond, the forest still stood. Tall, thick oak trees, dry and wild, extending backwards forever. Well, not forever. Extending backwards to a fence separating them from some suburban neighborhood. In the 70-degree cloudless daylight, there was nothing threatening about Alistair Park. The scariest thing that resided there were temperamental squirrels, Still, though, I shuddered. Childhood fears cut deep. I saw the street sign too late. I pulled a U turn on Huntington Boulevard. It was an easy mistake to make. I could barely recognize Briar Rose Drive. What had been a lower middle class neighborhood was now a manicured block with Stepford aspirations, multiple copies of last year's Mercedes Benz, lush lawns, Kelly Green despite the oft reported California drought. Cobblestone driveways, sprawling abodes with Spanish roofs. Except mine. I recognized mine in a second. My childhood home and the neighbors to the right, its exact double, were the only two on the block that hadn't been sold, flattened, and upgraded. They crouched amongst the mansions like a shriveled old couple on the bus. Cream-colored stucco walls, chipped blue garage door, huge bay windows, front porch running the length of the house. The lawn was yellow now. The row of juniper trees that lined the west edge of the property had been cut down. My first thought upon opening the door for the first time in a decade and a half was just how small it looked. The brown shag carpet was still there. Save for a tattered, stained old couch and a yellowing pile of mail beside it, there was no furniture. I walked through the empty living room and down the small hallway, peering into the master bedroom. There was a double bed there, with messy blankets and a plugged-in MacBook Air— I saw Alicia's books piled on the floor. Across the hall was the small bedroom, the one that Alicia and I used to share. There was a mattress and a box ring in the corner. It looked alright, though I wouldn't want to shine a black light on it. Again, I was overwhelmed by how small my old bedroom now seemed. I remembered our deep red chest of drawers, the little shelf where I'd arranged my dolls and stuffed animals, the figurines Alicia used to collect. We'd had bunk beds. I'd had the top. A large window overlooked the backyard. Across from the window was our hole-in-the-wall closet with sliding doors, the closet where the quill-shooting monster lived. It had served more as storage than anything else—baby toys, nice clothes we rarely wore, as it was tiny and perpetually dusty. Before we'd moved to Miami, my mom found a termite's nest in the closet, and we'd had to have the entire house fumigated. I felt an unwelcome pang of fear. Stupid. I was way too old to be scared of the monster in the closet. I made my way through the kitchen and opened the back door. The backyard sprawled, long and inviting, at my feet. It was the greatest hit of my childhood, the huge lot on which my small house was situated. There had been a swing set. Once thick jasmine hedges had grown along the entire length of the west and south fences, shielding us from view of the neighbors and producing creamy, delicious-smelling flowers in the summer. The grass, while never cultivated, was green and plentiful. Now the ground was yellow, brown, and dusty. My parents removed the carcass of the swing set four years ago. The sweet-smelling hedges had been torn out and replaced with high cinder block walls. The only thing left in the yard besides dead grass and dirt was my dad's chipping, rotting old shed. The shed. Now that's a fun story. After my parents bought the place, they found a small, collapsing underground bunker from the Cold War era in the backyard. My dad found it hilarious that anyone thought the thing would survive a nuclear blast. He doubted it would survive the next rainy season, so he filled it with dirt and concrete and built the tool shed on top. I took a couple steps. I fished for sunshiny memories, playing tag with Micah, Luke, and Tommy. Sitting on the swings and talking for hours until the sun set and my mom insisted my friends call their parents and go home. I'd always felt guilty about what happened to Micah. If we'd forgiven him, if we'd invited him over to play with us, he wouldn't have been at Atomic Video that day, and he wouldn't have died. I turned my head towards the yard east of us, to my house's double, through the rusted chain-link fence. At the bottom of that fence, at the far end of the yard, was a small patch that looked newer. Once it had been a child-sized hole. I wandered to it. I breathed in. They say that smell is the sense tied strongest to memory, and as the stench of cut grass and festering produce assaulted my nostrils, the memories came flooding back. An old man lived in that house. We called him Colonel Lewis. I can't recall if Lewis was his first name or last name, and I never knew whether he'd actually been in the military. The colonel part came from the camouflage jacket he wore. All we'd known about him was that he was about a thousand years old, probably closer to seventy, overweight, and mostly blind. His backyard would have been identical to ours had it not been shaded by a gargantuan oak tree and cluttered like a junkyard. Two old cars sat eternally on blocks, tangled in vines. Piles of wood hosted cockroaches and beetles. Cinder blocks were strewn all over, once piled but toppled by natural forces over the years. Amongst the piles of abandoned construction materials, Colonel Lewis had nursed another hobby, a compost heap. He'd had the gardeners throw grass clippings there mixed with rotting organic matter left over from his meals. My parents helped. My mom would gather carrot heads, avocado skins, apple cores, then have Alicia and me take them over to Colonel Lewis's compost heap. Now the compost heap was buried under collapsed cinder blocks. The smell of it still hung in the air. When we'd board of my house, Micah, Luke, Tommy, and I would sneak through the hole in the fence and explore Colonel Lewis's backyard. Colonel Lewis was aware, but he never really minded us being there so long as we didn't make too much noise. And he was half-deaf, too, so it took a particularly loud clatter, usually us sending a pile of cinder blocks careening to the ground, to make him plod to his back porch and demand we'd be more careful. Micah died thinking we hated him, thinking we'd never be friends again. I closed my eyes and breathed in the sour vegetable stench. When I opened them, I was looking at a little girl. She was a small child, maybe eight or nine, with porcelain doll skin and ice-blonde hair, standing directly on top of Colonel Lewis's buried compost heap. Her face was round and her features delicate. She wore a cute pink dress. Despite the messiness of the backyard, there was not so much as a smudge of dirt on her. She looked at me. She smiled. I gasped and jumped back. She hadn't been there a minute before, and I had no idea where she could have been hiding. "'Um, hi,' I finally stammered to the little girl. "'Where did you come from?' She took a step towards me, cocked her head. Something kicked in my brain. Something tapped my shoulder. I screamed and whirled around, scaring the shit out of Alicia. I'd been so lost in memories I hadn't even heard her car pull in the driveway.' For the moment the little blonde girl next door was forgotten, I greeted my sister enthusiastically. Fuck, Ansley, she said, you're jumpy today. You're the one who creeped out here like Michael fucking Myers. Uh, I'm creepy? You were staring at the neighbor's yard like you were possessed. Oh, apparently the neighbors have a kid. I turned back around. Colonel Lewis's yard was empty. There was no trace of the little blonde girl I'd locked eyes with moments before. I blinked. My internal temperature dropped about 50 degrees. What kid? And what neighbors? Alicia's voice sounded far away. The old man, Mr. Carlyle, died last November. That house has been empty since then. I think my sister was seriously worried about me by the time I'd finished harassing her with questions. Apparently, an estate agent had been around some weeks before, right after Alicia moved back into the house. The two of them had started talking, and the agent said she was working for the heirs of Lewis Carlyle. That was Colonel Lewis's real name. Poor Mr. Carlyle dropped dead of a heart attack. His sons planned on selling the property. The house had been abandoned since the coroner dragged the body away. Ans, you've been taking your meds, right? Alicia asked using her mom voice. I rolled my eyes. Yes, I've been taking my meds. I had been. And I knew what I'd seen. A little girl with ice-blonde hair and a pink dress standing in the backyard of an abandoned house. A little girl who could appear and disappear into thin air. A little girl that Alicia hadn't seen, though she was looking right at her. But that wasn't even what bothered me the most. What bothered me the most was I knew I'd seen that little girl before. I reminded myself again to call the LA-based psychiatrist my doctor in Miami recommended. Then I tried to take my mind off it. I'd had hallucinations before, twisted faces in trees and traffic lights and brick walls, shadow figures lurking behind people I'd see in the street, a cocker spaniel that followed me around. I knew how to manage hallucinations, acknowledge them, acknowledge that they're not real, and don't dwell. I unpacked some of my things, then headed out to go shopping. There was something going on at the house across the street. A young blonde guy, dressed in board shorts and a tank top with a picture of Morticia Adams, pulled cases of beer and wine out of the back of a Prius. He noticed me and waved. I waved back. I went to the nearest Ralph's my GPS found. It was the same one my mom had chopped out when I was a kid, which I would have been fine with had I not realized something fairly disconcerting as I pulled into the parking lot. The parking lot was shared with a strip mall, and the closest empty spot was right in front of what had once been Atomic Videos. The space was empty now, the plate glass front covered with brown construction paper. I bought what I needed from Ralph's, shoved the bags in my car, then found myself drawn to the tenantless storefront. I'd spent many afternoons there with my friends. Kevin Gideon, an unapologetic nerd, kept old arcade games. Micah held the high score in Centipede. Once Tommy, Luke, and I snuck into the locked, adults-only back room, I didn't quite remember how we managed to do it. A patch of construction paper had torn. I walked right up to it, put my eye to the glass, looked through the hole. Blackness, a half-finished counter, and some tools. I thought about Micah's favorite red hoodie. I wondered if he died wearing it and imagined how Kevin Gideon had done the deed. Had he driven Micah to his apartment in Eagle Rock, given him a bowl of strawberry ice cream laced with Rehypnol, then strangled him before toweling off? Maybe he hadn't even left. He could have pulled his Civic around the back of the store and in the dim little room where we'd once laughed at Camp Circle Jerk 3 and slutty nurses down and dirty, took what he wanted and disposed of my best friend. They'd found the red sweatshirt in a tight crawl space between the ceiling and the roof. I mused over Micah's final resting place, wherever that was. Maybe in some other little cavity, somewhere behind the pane of glass I peered through. I cringed at the cruelty of it. Micah had been terrified of small enclosed spaces. "'You know, it's cursed.' For the second time that day, I whirled around and yelped. This time I faced the blonde boy in the Morticia Adams tank top from across the street, a bag full of chips and red cups in his arms. He was grinning. "'Sorry,' he said. "'I didn't mean to scare you.' "'It's cool,' I said. "'I'm Ansley. I think we're neighbors.' "'Travis.' you just moved in, right? I nodded. He put on a serious expression. Well, there's some things about this town you should know. A pedophile used to own a candy store at this very spot. He'd lure little boys with video games and strangle them and hide their bodies under the floorboards and in the vents. When he died and the cops gutted the place, they found hundreds of tiny bodies. He dropped his voice, smiling lecherously. In the last six years, four stores have been here. All of them went out of business. They say it's because the ghosts of the murdered boys are still around. I have a friend who worked here when it was a GNC. He said that at night, he heard kids' voices sobbing, begging the bad man to stop hurting them. Travis paused dramatically, eyes open wide. I snorted. I'm serious. You're full of shit, I said. I grew up here. Yeah, there was an alleged pedophile who used to own a video store in this spot, but he only ever killed one kid, and they never actually proved it. I know that. I knew the kid. Travis's face fell. Fuck. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to- It's fine. It was a long time ago. Nice try. Well, I still feel like an asshole. He smiled apologetically. Hey, I'm having a party tonight. It's a kind of a reunion for my high school friends. You should come by if you're not doing anything, you and your roommate. My sister, I said. I'll think about it. I was going to ditch Travis's party. I'm not a big drinker, too many medications over the years that don't mix with alcohol, and I didn't want to run into anyone I'd attended elementary school with. But Alicia was seeing a movie with a friend, and I didn't want to spend Friday night alone with my phone either. The little girl I'd seen on Colonel Lewis's backyard still freaked me out. If I sat around obsessing, I'd fall into a magical thinking downward spiral. And if I started spiraling, I'd end up deluded and psychotic. I needed a distraction. Travis hugged me when I walked through the door, his cheeks apple red. He introduced me as the girl I tried to scare earlier and failed epically to an Asian guy with a side part I later learned was his boyfriend. My apprehensions about running into old classmates ended up being unfounded. Only a dozen or so people came. Most were considerably younger than me, and I didn't recognize a single one. Travis told me he'd moved into town with his parents six years before. He was a rising senior at UCLA, majoring in psychology. He'd been a self-described goth brat in high school, obsessed with horror. There was a noticeable abundance of black eyeliner and skinny jeans amongst the partygoers. At some point during the night, Travis procured a Ouija board. A group of them messed with it. I politely declined. I had a drink, then another drink. Travis's boyfriend was bartending, and he must have poured the hard stuff liberally because after two rum and Cokes, I was stumbling through a blur. More people came, I think. Everything was suddenly louder. I wandered down a hallway to get some air. Travis's house had been extensively remodeled, but not bulldozed. I recognized the shape of the windows in the bathroom. I'd been there before. We'd known a family who used to live there. They had a boy and a girl. The boy was in Alicia's class. The girl was autistic. I stumbled to the backyard and found myself staring into familiar eyes. The party had spread out. A few kids passed around a joint and someone had fallen into the pool. Two boys were talking in a corner. One noticed me and grabbed my arm. Silvery hair, square jaw, Harry Potter glasses. Luke. The last time I'd seen Luke Anderson, he'd been a scrawny 12-year-old with spiky hair, an angular face, and thick glasses. Ten years had done him good. He was tall, at least six feet, slim and toned. The Harry Potter glasses accentuated his gray opal eyes. "'Ansley fucking Vasquez,' he said to me. I downed the remainder of my rum and coke. I might have hugged him. I half remember his hand in mine leading me into a fuzzy gray warmth as the alcohol in my bloodstream wound its way into my brain, turning memories to mush. I woke up lying in warm sand. I sat, blinking sunlight from my eyes. I was in Alistair Park, right in front of the play structure. The park was empty. It was early morning. I could see the sun rising over the forest. Rising over the forest? No. My mind oriented itself. The forest was to the west. It was dusk, and the sun was setting. I should have worried about what might have transpired during the time I'd been blacked out or wondered how I ended up unconscious in a children's playground. I should have been hungover, but I didn't, and I wasn't. The only thing that gave me pause were my hands. They looked small. I saw two little boys a short distance away silhouetted by the large orange sun. I squinted. One was Asian, tallish, wearing overalls. The other was white, small, and swallowed by an oversized red hoodie. The Asian kid moved towards me, plodding across the sand. Except he couldn't have been, because the sand in Alistair Park had been replaced with that spongy rubber foam. First, I realized I was dreaming. Then, I realized who the little boy was. Tommy. Tommy Lou. Twelve-year-old Tommy. Which would make the other kid... "'Ansley, come on!' Tommy chirped through the wide-mouthed gape he'd assumed when he was nervous. I looked at my hands again. They were child's hands. Then the sun was gone and dim moonlight washed over the trees. Tommy turned and hurried towards the forest. I followed, led by some force that wasn't my own will. "'Hurry, Ansley!' Tommy shouted. I looked for the boy in the red sweatshirt, but he was nowhere to be found. I'd stopped moving as Tommy sprinted ahead of me, then I felt the tug on my ankle and something warm. I stumbled. My stomach dropped in terror. A smooth yellow worm, thick as a roll of toilet paper protruding from the sand, was wrapped around the leg of my jeans. I screamed and struggled, but the thing kept hold. Then there were more of them, extending like spaghetti out of the ground, rapidly reaching for me. One grabbed my other leg, pulling me off balance. I fell to the ground, catching myself with my right hand. A third worm wrapped itself around my bare arm. I'd expected cold and slimy, but rather the banana-yellow rope was hot. And there must have been something in its skin that reacted badly with mine because stinging pain shot from my elbow to my hand. I was being dragged, fast. I felt the rough sand against my side. Then wet droplets on my back. And then stillness. Tommy stood over me. He'd doused the worms with something out of a spray bottle, and they retreated. I clutched my numb right arm. The yellow worm left nasty red welts where it had connected with my skin. "'Come on!' Tommy yelled, but I was looking at something else. I could see into the forest, and standing right at the foot of the lush trees was the little girl with the ice-blonde hair from Colonel Lewis's yard. Still in the same pink dress, still flawlessly clean, she was staring at me. A smile broke across her porcelain-pale, round face. She turned around and walked nonchalantly into the thicket. I blinked. Standing in her place was the little boy in the red sweatshirt. I could see his face, and my suspicions were confirmed. It was Micah. Behind him amongst the blackened branches hung a pair of huge, hungry orange eyes. As everything bled into gray, I heard him screaming, Help me, Ansley! Save me! My eyes snapped open. I was somewhere warm and dark. Bang. The loud noise jolted me into full consciousness. As my eyes adjusted to the dark, the features of my bedroom came into focus. I was lying on the mattress and box spring wrapped in the blanket I'd haphazardly unpacked. Moonlight streamed in through the blinds, throwing gray and white stripes on the closet door. My head throbbed. My right arm was numb. I'd been sleeping on it, cutting off the circulation. In a second I'd feel pins and needles. I took a breath and lurched. Nausea bubbled in my throat. Something in the room reeked. A rotting, earthy stench with a tinge of unwelcome sweetness. Bang! Bang! I jumped. Was someone at the bang? Scratch, scratch. No. The sound was coming from somewhere in the room. I wrapped the blanket tighter around myself. Scratch, scratch, scratch. Bang! Bang! Behind my closet door. It was a hallucination. Not real. Not real. Not real. The last thing I remember was pressing my eyes shut, watching the neon shapes change behind my eyelids, praying for nothingness as the pins and needles sensation in my arm dulled and the rotting smell became hypnotic and I heard one last time, Ansley, help me! June 6, 2016. I opened my eyes and immediately wished I hadn't. Bright sunlight streamed through the blinds, casting a grid against the shag carpet. It was late and it felt like someone had taken a drill to my cranium. I untangled myself from my blanket. My shoes had been discarded by the door, and the green party dress I'd fallen asleep in bunched around my waist. Slam! I jumped. I heard my sister's voice cursing from somewhere outside of my room as disjointed memories of the previous twelve hours flooded my consciousness. I'd had a really screwed up dream. I dreamed there was something in the closet slamming against the door. Alistair, Park, Tommy and Luke were there, Micah was there. I'd seen the little porcelain-skinned blonde girl. No. I could swear the knocks at my closet door had been real, rousing me from my blacked-out slumber. There had been a horrible smell. How much was a dream? Had I actually been in the park? When I saw the red welts on my right arm, I almost screamed. I remembered the thick yellow worms, how strong they'd been, how much it hurt when the thing wrapped itself around my bicep. Then reality cut through my hungover fog and I saw the welts for what they were. Numbers. Seven digits written on my arm in shaky red marker. The first three, six, two, six. Our area code. I threw on sweats and a t-shirt, plugged in my phone, and met my sister in the kitchen. Alicia was sitting at the little tin table that functioned as our dining area, sipping coffee and looking over her slab-like study guide for the bar exam. Sorry if I woke you, she said when she noticed me. I dropped my book. It's fine, I said, pouring myself a cup of coffee she'd brewed. I sat across from her. She looked up from her reading. "Anns, if you get a chance, can you go through the pile of mail in the living room? The renters kept getting our stuff, and a couple envelopes had your name. Sure. I'll do it today. I took a sip of my coffee. Hey, did you hear anything weird last night? She shook her head. A couple loud people leaving your party, that's about it. Because I could swear someone was knocking on our door really hard. Alicia frowned. Well, it didn't wake me, and I don't think anyone would be banging on the door in the middle of the night. I sipped my coffee. She was right. We didn't know anyone here who would come around at 3 a.m., and it hadn't been the front door. I distinctly heard knocks and scratches from inside my closet. My tiny closet, which couldn't fit a being large enough to produce sounds that violent. Did you call the shrink yet? Alicia asked as though reading my thoughts. I will today. Something else from the night before came to mind. Hey, Leash, do you remember the family who used to live across the street? Alicia's stern look melted. She smiled almost kittenishly. Yeah, the Kaperskis. I recalled a pot-bellied man and a small bird-like woman. They'd had a skinny teenage son with a round face and the longish, wavy emo boy haircut that was popular for about a minute in the early 2000s. I read into Alicia's schoolgirl smile. You had a crush on that guy, she giggled. Andy, we sort of dated for like two months, right before we moved to Miami. Oh, somebody ignored dad's no boyfriends until you're 18 rule, Alicia snorted. "'Yeah, like you waited.' "'I did. "'Drunken makeout buddies don't count as boyfriends,' I laughed. "'I can't believe you fucked the kid across the street.' "'We didn't go all the way,' she said shyly. "'We were sneaking around. "'I'd run over there when Mom and Dad were out. "'His parents worked weird hours. "'The only person who knew about us was his sister, "'and it's not like she was going to tell anyone.' "'Something kicked in my brain. "'I remembered a sister.' "'You remember the daughter, right?' Alicia asked. "'Matilde. Cute little blonde girl with autism?' A sensation like lava trickled from my shoulders to my toes. I suddenly felt extremely heavy. I did remember Mathilde. She was small, round-faced, and delicate-featured. Because she preferred to play alone in her room, her skin was porcelain pale. Her favorite color was pink. The little girl from my hallucination. The little girl from my dream." Mathilde. I climbed in the shower and let rivulets drip off my hair until the lukewarm water ran cold. Matilde. How could I have forgotten Matilde? Well, not forgotten, exactly. More like I'd folded her up in my subconscious. I remembered the little blonde autistic girl who lived across the street, but I hadn't thought about her in fifteen years. Matilde had been two years younger than me. We'd gone to the same elementary school where she was in the special ed class. She never played with the other kids at recess. She just sat, expressionless, observing. I'm not an expert on autism, but she was definitely at the far end of the spectrum, to the point where she was completely nonverbal. They did manage to teach her enough sign language to communicate her most basic needs. She'd sign with her parents, her brother, and her personal school-appointed aide. Otherwise, she was locked in her own little world behind her big blue eyes. She had, however, shown signs of being a savant. While she never spoke, she drew. Her pictures were all over their house, taped to the refrigerator, framed on the wall, filling notebook after notebook. On the few occasions my parents took me across the street to socialize, I'd been amazed and immensely jealous of her skill. The pictures were always of various things and people she saw throughout the day. Her classroom teacher, the line at the grocery store, a teenage couple making out on a bench at Allister Park. Her mom once gave my parents a small collection. Pictures Mathilde drew of our house, of Alicia and me in the front yard, my dad loading his truck. Mathilde also seemed to possess an amazing memory and an uncanny eye for detail. One of her pictures depicted my mom and I walking to the car before school. I wore a Digimon sweater and lace-fringed jean shorts. My dad's truck was parked in front of the house. There was a purple manila folder on the dash labeled Corona. I knew the exact shorts and sweater. Every detail in Mathilde's picture was perfect though she must have only seen us for a minute from her bedroom window, in that purple manila folder. I remember my father turning the house upside down looking for the corona contracts, searching frantically for an hour before he'd finally found them in the truck. The folder was there, clear as day, in the picture. The picture was signed, Mathilde, and dated 2 2001 Mathilde always signed and dated her pictures. She could be a courtroom artist, my mom once told hers. Mathilde Kapersky. Why Matilde Kapersky? I stepped out of the shower, changed, and retreated to my room. There, I stared at the closet door. My arms pimpled. I was scared. Scared despite the fact that nothing that could fit in the closet could possibly do me any harm. Heart racing, I slid open the door. A cloud of dust hit me in the face. I coughed. Then I looked. There was nothing. I was peering into a dusty, hobbit-sized cubby. Annoyed at my own immaturity, I stuck my head in the closet. In the far corner, there were two objects—a cylindrical wooden dowel and a little brown notebook. Dust irritating my eyes, I reached in and pulled both out. I remembered the dowel. When I was ten and scared of the monster in the closet, my father cut it and showed me how to jam the door closed by placing the wooden cylinder along the track it slid on. "'Try and open it,' he'd said to me. I had. I'd pushed on the handle as hard as I could the wood didn't budge. My dad laughed. Even monsters have to obey the laws of physics. Of more interest to me was the brown notebook. It had been my childhood journal where I'd written down all of the fantastical plot lines my friends and I had imagined. All the adventures of the four grand adventurers. After Micah disappeared, I wanted nothing to do with the thing. I guessed one of the tenants had found it, thrown it in the closet, and forgotten about it. I sat on the bed and opened the book. I flipped through a few pages of weapons, anything we could construct out of polymer clay and Legos, and potions, mixtures of flowers and leaves and whatever our parents had in the kitchen, before settling on the first challenge. The bagworms live in the sand. They have no eyes and they don't like the sun because they disintegrate. There are hundreds of them. Their ruler is the great bagworm. She lives 50 feet under the sand and is 30 feet long and 5 feet thick and is orange. The little yellow worms are her slaves. When it's dark, they come out of the sand and grab children to take back to the great bagworm to eat. I stopped reading. I flipped the page. On the next, one of us, probably Tommy, who was the best artist, had drawn a picture of the bagworms. The little yellow worms that came out of the sand in the dark. It was an illustration of my dream. And if I wasn't scared then, I became even more so after reading the rest. The bagworms are servants of the demon. They capture children and take them into the forest to the demon's lair. It is said that if a grand adventurer can defeat the little yellow bagworms, the great bagworm will come out to protect the forest. To kill the demon, we must defeat the great bagworm. Their weakness is starshine juice. Starshine juice. In my dream, Tommy had sprayed the worms with something. I flipped back to the potion section and found starshine juice. Diet Coke mixed with three jasmine flowers picked under a full moon. I closed the journal. That was enough memories for the day. We'd been trying to kill the evil thing that lived in the forest with flowers and sugar water, and apparently my subconscious was regurgitating all this information now that I was back in the old house. What had I done last night? I pulled a little screw-top bottle out of my still-unpacked suitcase, extracted one orange pill, and swallowed it. I've cycled through more antipsychotics than I can remember, starting with Thorazine when I first relapsed at 13, often paired with antidepressants, before settling on the split dose of Haldol I've been taking for almost three years now. Then I looked at the number written on my arm. My shower had dimmed the bright red digits, but they were still readable. I pulled my iPhone off the charger and dialed. Hi, a male voice. Who is this? Who is this? I blurted out, this is Ansley. I have your number written on my arm. Ans? This is Luke Anderson. I hadn't been assaulted by sand-dwelling monster worms. I hadn't seen Tommy or Mathilde or Micah. If something pounded on my closet door, it managed to circumvent the laws of physics so my sister couldn't hear a thing. But Luke was real. We met at Starbucks. I sat at a little black table and watched him walk through the door tall, lean, and square-jawed. His looks were the ideal combination of his parents, young and smiling in the photographs on his grandmother's mantle, Midwest Norwegian father, crushed to death under his dashboard in a ditch alongside the 110 before Luke was potty-trained, Chinese-American mother, now an empty-eyed quadriplegic on a ventilator in a dirty post-acute in Silmar. I was going to have to try really, really hard to not have a crush on him. He looked good. He smiled suavely as he sat in the chair across from me. Ansley fucking Vasquez. I grinned. Luke fucking Anderson. I'm surprised you recognized me, he said. I thought Jack Daniels completely destroyed your ability to create short-term memories last night. It did, but I might have Facebook stalked you a few times. He raised his eyebrows. Why didn't you get in touch with me? I just... Micah. Our childhood friend's name served as a suitable one-word explanation for our dearth of communication in the social media age. Luke's smile dimmed. Yeah. I get it. While we're on the topic, how did you recognize me last night? He smiled brightly again. I might have Facebook stalked you a few times. I giggled. He kept looking at me as though he were trying to look through me. "'So, Travis?' I said. "'I met him at UCLA. I did some research there. "'I didn't know he lived across the street from you.' "'So UCLA, huh?' I asked playfully. "'You know, I expected more out of you. "'When we were kids, everyone kept saying Harvard. "'Did you slack off in high school?' "'I doubted he'd slacked off in high school, but the Harvard part was true. "'Luke was only nine months older than me, but two grades ahead in school.' He'd skipped third grade and might have skipped even more if our elementary school had been inclined to do that sort of thing. At 12, his resume included Algebra 2, perfect standardized test scores, and summers at Johns Hopkins camp. Oh, Harvard accepted me, he said, but UCLA gave me a free ride, so I thought, let me make the Ivies wait until I'm ready for med school. Until I'm ready for med school? You're in med school? I asked. About to start my first year at Georgetown. I smiled. Congrats, man. How about you? What's Ansley fucking Vasquez been up to? Nothing that impressive. Florida State, English degree, two years teaching preschool. Luke cocked his head. Are you pursuing writing? You should. You were so talented. Well, teaching for now. I'm a TA at a Montessori in Santa Monica this fall. Then maybe my master's. I'm looking at Loyola Marymount. "'Loyola Marymount, huh?' Luke smirked. "'They're the school out there that wants to be Georgetown. "'They've got a single white female thing going on with us. "'Cute. "'Wait, Georgetown, like, in The Exorcist?' "'That's what Travis keeps on saying,' he laughed. "'Notoriety, baby.' "'Okay, if we're done talking shit about each other's schools, "'I actually wanted to ask you about last night.' "'His face straightened. "'You are wasted.' We sat on Travis's porch and talked. Your phone was dead, so you told me to write my number on your arm. Then you said you were tired, so I walked you to your door. That was all? I asked. We didn't go anywhere? No. Just your house. And you saw me go inside. I didn't wander off anywhere? Yes, I'm sure. He laughed. I waited outside for a couple minutes to make sure you didn't stumble out and get hit by a car or something. Why? Did you wake up with a lower back tattoo? No, definitely not. What did we talk about? He shrugged. Things. You said you're hanging around for the summer. Alicia finished law school, kicked her fiancé to the curb, and moved back into your old place. Your dad's finally going to flatten the shack. Just that? I insisted. Ansley, what are you getting at? I... I had a really weird dream, I said, about Micah and Tommy. At the mention of Tommy's name, Luke's calm expression broke. His eyes narrowed for a second before he rearranged his poker face. You did ask me about Tommy last night. I might have Facebook stopped him, too. He was studying architecture, right? Screw that. He'd be an architect by now. Luke frowned. He looked at his lap. "'Did you Facebook stalk Tommy lately?' "'No, I did once, like four years back. "'Why?' "'Luke closed his eyes, then opened them. "'Tommy's dead, Ansley. "'He slit his wrist six months ago.' "'I drove in circles for an hour after parting with Luke. "'Sure, it had been tough coming back to the place "'where I'd spent countless afternoons "'playing make-believe with Micah, "'but I'd been mentally prepared for the painful memories.' I knew Micah had been savagely violated and I knew he was dead, I'd gotten used to it. Tommy, though. I thought about the pictures I'd seen on his Facebook page when procrastinating. I'd searched for him years before. He'd been tall and beanpole thin with a baby face and the half-buzzed haircut of a Korean pop star, laughing over red cups in a San Luis Obispo dorm room. Out of the four of us, he'd been the most fun. I tried to imagine Tommy, lanky, goofy prankster Tommy, locking himself in a bathroom and taking a razor blade to his arteries. I couldn't do it. Luke tried to make me feel better. It was best I'd heard it from him, from empathetic, halcyon, psychiatrist-in-training Luke. He'd been a calming presence on me as a scared kid, an effect he reprised at the Starbucks that afternoon. Tommy was clinically depressed, Luke explained. He was the young, hotshot, whiz kid at a firm in Phoenix. One day, he just broke down, quit, left his whole life, and came back here. I think he worked a couple crappy minimum-wage jobs, then he met a heroin dealer. So that was messing with his head, plus his prescription meds, and apparently he was drinking. I guess he couldn't take it anymore. He was always so happy, I said, paying homage to the cliché. Did you talk to him at all before he... Luke shook his head. I was still in D.C., and honestly, he and I weren't friends. Hadn't been for a while. The whole and-then-there-were-two thing was too tough to deal with. His parents transferred him to Catholic school, so it wasn't even like we saw each other by the lockers. We'd wave from across the street. That was about it. I'm sure I looked like a bomb had gone off in front of me. Luke smiled comfortingly. I do miss him, though. Remember those pictures he drew of Mrs. Schmidt? That shit was hilarious. I did the middle school guidance counselor. A short, overweight, middle-aged woman with frizzy hair and a perennially constipated face elicited the ire of the entire student body with her condescending assemblies on bullying and eating disorders, always held right after lunch, robbing them of their treasured playtime. Tommy would sketch unflattering cartoons of her in the margins of his notebooks. He was so fucking talented, I said. I was always so jealous of him. Yeah, well, I missed you too, Ansley fucking Vasquez. Luke smiled genuinely at me. And I'm glad we're talking again. I just... I don't want this to be the place where Micah died, you know? Or Tommy. I want it to be where we made awesome memories together. In that moment, it was what I wanted too. But as I canvassed the city in my car, it was hard to feel anything but loss. Loss and guilt. I should have messaged Tommy on Facebook, called him, something. He was suffering and I had no idea. Whenever I thought about him, which was pitifully rare, I'd imagine him designing skyscrapers and telling jokes and being happy. Micah and Tommy, two dead boys, two friends to wallow over. Tommy dead in a bathtub, the furthest thing from my mind. Micah dead at the hands of a monster, newly friendless because of a stupid fight. It seems so petty now. He'd told our fifth-grade teacher that Luke let me copy his old report and we were giving him the silent treatment for tattling. Dumb kid stuff. It had been a life science paper I'd plagiarized about animals that used echolocation. The sun was low in the sky by the time I turned onto Fifth Avenue. In the burned gold light, Alistair Park looked particularly inviting. A group of small children chased each other up and down the play structure. Two teenage boys shot hoops on the cracked asphalt basketball court. Like an epiphany, I knew where I wanted to be. I strolled along the concrete footpath over the spongy black foam at the base of the play structure, to the swings. I sat in the highest one, my feet dragged on the ground. I felt like a bit of a freak, a grown woman in a child's playground. It's strange with age how completely you forget the euphoria of a swing. The butterflies in your stomach, the breeze against your cheeks, the hypnotic up and down, back and forth to the squeak, squeak, squeak of the rusting metal hinges. I was playing Pokemon on my Game Boy Color at the tables by the basketball courts. Sabrina in the Saffron Gym. Kadabra. Level 38. I chose the level 38 Charizard I'd recently acquired for my Blastoise in a trade with Tommy. Slash should do it. And 24 HP. Engaged in the battle, I began humming a jump rope song to myself. i learned it from Lacey Chung at recess, and it was stuck in my head. Mandy took a drive down to Indio, joined a curiosity show. She's got ears for fingers, teeth for toes, and a big brown eye on the end of her nose. A shrill tittering, like a cage of parakeets at the pet store. I looked up. Matilde Kapersky sat at the table beside me, pencil in hand, giggling uncontrollably. I hadn't realized I'd been chanting the words out loud. Do you like the rhyme? I asked her. I'd never heard Matilde's laugh before. She laughed so hard she dislodged her spiral notebook from her lap. I put my game aside, picked it up, and handed it back to her. Her drawing was of me, hunched over my Game Boy. In the distance, silhouetted against the trees, was a dark, menacing figure. I whirled around. He stood in the grass. I yelped. Micah, what gives? I almost peed my pants. Micah looked down, embarrassed, bushy brown curls falling over his eyes. He stuffed his hands in the pockets of his red hoodie. Sorry, he mumbled. You were going to meet me by the starshine gate. Yeah, at three. I checked my neon blue digital watch. It's 221. I was about to beat Sabrina. I turned off my Game Boy, put it in my purse, and left Mathilde to her artwork. Her brother Andy was playing catch with another boy in the baseball field. I decided to leave Sabrina for later. Instead, I sat on the swings with Micah. I know how we can beat the great bagworm, he said to me excitedly. We're supposed to wait for Luke and Tommy to talk about strategy, I reminded him. But we're better than them at strategy, he insisted. I don't think starshine juice is going to work. She's got a really hard exoskeleton, like a lobster or a rhinoceros beetle. Did you know that rhinoceros beetles can carry like 800 times their weight? Why are we talking about rhinoceros beetles, Micah? He smiled a big, hopeful smile. Because if we want to kill the great bagworm, we can't just like squirt her with starshine juice. I think I should find out where her exoskeleton is weak. "'I frowned. "'But you're scared of the great bagworm. "'Let's ask Luke first. Micah pouted like a chastised puppy. "'You always do what Luke wants to do.' "'I snapped out of my reverie to find myself alone. "'The children were being herded towards the gate by their mothers, "'followed closely by the teenaged basketball players, "'one of them bouncing the ball. "'I listened to the thump, thump, thump fade away. "'I let my feet drag on the ground, slowing my perpetual motion.' It was nearly dusk. I stared into the forest, stoic and aloof, dried brown leaves carpeting the floor. A light breeze shook a waterfall of acorns from their heavy branches. They fell, clattering to the earth like conspiratorial giggles. The forest kept secrets. Irrational, baseless curiosity overcame irrational, baseless fear. I stood, walked to the tree line, and peered into the tangled grove. Nothing interesting, just oak trees, brown bushes, scattered trash— I started walking around the nearest trees, bobbing in and out, gradually weaving deeper and deeper farther away from the comforting sight of Fifth Avenue until the street was no longer within view. I wasn't lost. All I had to do was turn to the left and walk straight, and I'd be out. Suddenly I noticed the forest smelled weird. Oaks aren't the most olfactory of trees, and I was sure it was a vegetable stench that tinged my nostrils. Grass. Fresh-cut grass. Something rotting. Something sickly sweet. They say smell is the sense tied strongest to memory, and I remembered. It smelled just like Colonel Lewis's compost heap. Then I saw Mathilde. She was maybe twenty feet in front of me, crouching close to the ground, gathering acorns, digging a hole. As I approached, she stood. Whatever she'd been doing, she'd done it neatly. Her pink dress was beauty pageant clean, her ice-blonde hair hung long and shiny, folded behind delicate ears a smile inched across her round face. She's a hallucination. She isn't real. I was frozen. Was it possible the smell had gotten worse? It felt sticky, liquid, clinging to me like sweat. Shock numbed my fight-or-flight reflex and I gasped. Matilde? I stuttered dumbly. At her name, her smile drooped. Her eyes bugged like a rabbit to a dog. Then she turned and ran. This apparently signaled my glands to emit the squirt of epinephrine I needed, and I chased her. Weaving around trees, dodging low-hanging branches, acorns crunching under my feet, mouth breathing through the compost stink. Hey, kid! I yelled after her. Kid! Stop! I blinked as I pushed past a twig at eye level. Then the forest ended. I was at a chain-link fence separating trees from sidewalk, and Mathilde was gone. I leaned on the fence and panted. I'd made it to the southern end of the forest which bordered Huntington Drive. I rested my face in my arms until my breathing slowed. She had been there. Then she was gone. I was losing it. Straightening up, I realized the rotting grass stench had dissipated, replaced with something honey-sweet and familiar—jasmine. To my right, interwoven with the fence, was a jasmine bush. I picked a handful of the creamy, star-shaped flowers and buried my nose in them, inhaling the perfume sweetness. I was sizing up the strength of the fence versus the extent of my climbing abilities when I discovered a more suitable door number two, thirty feet west of me, a gate. I knew that gate. It was the point at which Tommy, Luke, and I would meet Micah when we decided to go to the park. I gazed across Huntington, at the row of little gray and white houses with wide bay windows and sensible front yards. Somewhere that direction down a little side street had been Micah's blue house. He'd cross Huntington at the stoplight and wait for us at the gate. We'd called it Starshine Gate because of the jasmine. Before escaping through Starshine Gate, I risked one more glance into the forest. It was nearly night, and the trees had assumed their horror movie positions, clawing skeletal branches, discarded beer bottles catching the light of the full moon like hundreds of tiny eyes. I heard something twitch, maybe a squirrel. Then I saw them and I ran. I ran like a mad woman down Huntington, hung a left at fifth, threw myself in my car, and was in my driveway before my heart stopped pounding. My medication really did need to be tweaked. I really did need to call up that psychiatrist because I knew what I saw within Alistair Park. Deep in the forest, fixed on me like drones, two burning orange eyes. I spent the next two hours on the internet, I hit up every single schizophrenia board I used to lurk about, emailed a few online friends, left my Florida doctor a long voice message. I'd had scary episodes in the past. Once I became convinced that the Hardy star was communicating with me telepathically, relaying messages from aliens who lived in the sewers. But never had my hallucinations taken the form of fantasy creatures I'd made up with my friends in elementary school. Finally, I gave up and switched over to Netflix intending to spend the rest of the night binge-watching Doctor Who. Then I had a morbid impulse. I googled Matilde Kapersky. A Facebook page belonging to Matilda Kapersky, a redhead marketing manager from Ontario. Search for Matilde Kapersky on LinkedIn. Then, pages featuring bits and pieces of her name, always referring to other people. Nothing useful. I thought for a minute. Then I typed in Andrew Kapersky. Eureka! Eureka! I found his Instagram. Alicia's high school sweetheart was an IT specialist in Seattle now. He seemed like your run-of-the-mill guy in his late 20s. There were photos of him hiking, playing with his dog, proudly holding mugs of green beer with a group of vintage bros. His round face had aged poorly. His thick blonde curls had aged rather well. Nowhere did I see any mention of a sister. Before I had time to reconsider, I DM'd him. Hi, Andy. I don't know if you remember me or not, but I used to live across the street from you on Briar Rose Avenue. I think you were friends with my sister Alicia. I'm back in town for the summer and was just trying to catch up with some people from the old days. Hope you're doing well. Also, how's Matilde? I remember she was an amazing artist. I think my parents still have some of her old pictures. Message me back if you have time. I'm sure Alicia would love to know how you're doing. Ansley Vasquez. I hit send. I highly doubted he'd get back to me. I sprawled on the bed, landing on my little brown journal. I pulled it out from under me and opened to a random page. If I was going to be assaulted by figments of my imagination as I slept, I might as well know what I was up against. I'd opened to an illustration of a swarm of small, gray, angry looking fairy people with gargoyle faces and fangs, taking shape out of black squiggles. The droxies live and multiply in warm, dark places. They feed off blood, they suck from their prey. They're very good at hiding. They lure their prey with jewels and gold hidden in small, enclosed spaces. Then they wait until their prey is completely in the space. Then they block the exit and suck him dry. The Droxies are the feet soldiers for the demon. They're his spies because they're good at hiding, and they do his bidding. He kills animals for them so they can drink their blood if there is not enough humans around. The Droxies are scared of light and only go see the demon on moonless nights. They are misers and like treasure and metal. The Four Grand Adventurers must defeat them because they have stolen the weapon that can be used to kill the demon." I smiled. This must have been Micah's idea. Once during a game of hide-and-seek, he'd slipped under his bed and had been mounted by a giant American cockroach. After that, he was always scared of itchy, creepy things hiding in small enclosed spaces. I glanced at my closet, I got out of bed, grabbed the wooden dowel, and positioned it along the track. I tried the door a couple times. Nope. The laws of physics still work. And even monsters have to obey the laws of physics. I woke to light streaming through my window. I rolled over and realized the sky was still dark, the luminosity courtesy of the huge full moon. I took a breath. I breathed in rotting grass and vegetable waste. Then I heard a door creak open. I snapped my head around, recalling the droxies of Tommy's grotesque picture, their love of enclosed spaces. I braced myself for ugly little forms emerging from the closet like bats settling on the choicest parts of my flesh bearing sharp teeth the closet door had cracked open but the harried flutter didn't come a purple fleshy protuberance poked from the depths gingerly like an elephant's trunk but with a rounded tip it curled around the door handle then pointed towards me then it retreated i clinched my eyes shut i breathed slow and deep letting the organic rot fill my lungs. Just a dream, just a dream. A giggle, shrill, tittering like a cage full of parakeets. Then a tap, tap, tap on my window. My eyes shot open. I think I screamed. Matilde's round, porcelain doll face pressed against the glass, staring in at me with big blue eyes that never blinked. Her mouth was moving like an animatronic. Open, shut, open, shut. Want to know? "'Look below. Want to know? Look below.'" The same words repeated again and again in a high-pitched, inhuman voice, metallic, robotic. I shifted my eyes to the ground, desperate to look at anything that wasn't Matilde. I saw tentacles, long, boneless limbs, three of them purple and bloated, slithering across the brown shag carpet like silly putty, weaving their way to my dangling blanket, towards my bed, Through the slit in my closet door, the full moon reflected off glassy black eyes. The monster in the closet, with long limbs that shot. The slithering purple tentacles reared like cobras, expanded like balloons, and opened. I pulled the blanket over my head. They stung. I felt the poisonous quills pelt my arms and legs again and again as I folded into myself, choking on the thick liquid stench of vegetable rot.
1: Help me, Ansley, please! I'm sorry, Ansley! Please save me! June 7th,
0: 2017. It was almost noon when I opened my eyes. My closet door was shut tight. The wooden dowel rested along the track. I swallowed my morning dosage of Haldol, then looked up the local psychiatrist who'd been recommended to me. It said on her website that her office was closed on Wednesdays. Crap. Another night of monster dreams. My self-created horrors normally regulated themselves to the waking hours. I'd never been prone to vivid dreams or even remembering my dreams for long after having them. But two nights in the Briar Rose house had inspired two singularly disturbing nightmares, and for all the insistence of my meds being the culprit, I'd been on exactly the same regiment for years. I thought back to my torrid internet session the night before. I'd been wrong. I realized there had been a time when my hallucinations took the form of the monsters my friends and I created in our child minds, when I was plagued by violent, vivid dreams. The last time I'd slept in this bedroom, when I was eleven, after Micah disappeared. I curled up, wrapped myself in my blanket, and thought it over. I'd hallucinated about Micah, I'd woken up screaming from nightmares of the horrifying behemoths in my imagination, because then I was sure. Completely, genuinely, life-pledgingly sure, I'd seen Micah dragged away by the monster that lived in Alistair Park. Was I now unsure? The thought hit me like a punch. No. I knew what happened to Micah. Kevin Gideon kidnapped and murdered him. They'd found Micah's hoodie and inhaler hidden in his store. That's the logical explanation. That's what any moderately intelligent, mentally sound adult would believe. But the police never found his body. Want to know, look below. The thought of Dream Matilde's robot voice sent shivers down my spine. I'd heard stories about repressed memories, people who experienced abominable things as children, usually women, usually sexual abuse, then buried the horrors deep within their subconscious, only to have them pop up years in the future, triggered by some sight or sound. Was that what was happening to me? Had I experienced something so traumatizing years ago that I'd forced myself to forget it in order to function in society? Did that something involve Micah's disappearance? Being back in my childhood bedroom back wandering Alistair Park? Was all of this triggering those memories, dragging them to the surface? I felt acid in my stomach. The thought of violent, twisted memories hiding in my subconscious was scarier than anything out of my nightmares. I went to the closet and removed the dowel from the track. Blood pounding in my ears, I slid open the door. Nothing but dust. Again. This time I pushed myself further. I stepped into the closet. It really was a tiny space I had to crouch to fit. I turned around and pulled the door halfway closed. I felt a rush of adrenaline. A bit of Micah's claustrophobia had worn off on me. A thin sliver of light seeped in. I gasped. There were scratches in the paint on the back of the door. They had to have been made by someone inside the closet, or something, something with claws. Luke met me at Starbucks. Over chai lattes, I told him everything. Mathilde, my dreams, the journal, the scratches on the inside of my closet door, the recurring smell of Colonel Lewis's compost heap, and my gut-churning vision in the forest. He gave me his undivided attention. The line of his mouth remained stoic and understanding, and even as I heard myself devolve to near depravity, his eyes never left mine. "'Are these symptoms of repressed memories?' I asked him finally. "'I didn't hallucinate like this in Miami.' He grinned as though I were a child asking about Santa Claus. "'Okay, first of all, your parents rented the house for years. I'm sure some kid made the scratches as a joke.' And second of all, repressed memories is Freudian pop psychology that the field just can't seem to shake. It's a misunderstanding of how memory actually works. Well, what about people with amnesia? I asked. Luke was getting condescending and it was bothering me. What about them? Amnesia is caused by damage to the part of the brain that stores memories. That's really not what we're talking about here. Your memory isn't like a video camera. You don't record things and then play them back. And for every housewife crying over repressed trauma on Dr. Phil, there's a thousand therapy patients with false memories Jedi mind-tricked into them. Okay, well, what about Mathilde? I shot back, now truly annoyed. I didn't even recognize her the first time I hallucinated her. Have you seen a picture of Matilde lately? Luke asked plainly. A real one. Because if you did, I'm sure she wouldn't actually look like the girl in your dreams. What? Luke sighed. Have you ever liked a line from a book or a movie? Of course you have. You go around repeating that line, quoting it, thinking about it occasionally. Then maybe a couple years later you watch that movie or open that book again and the line is completely different than what you've been repeating, quoting, and thinking. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, the Mandela effect. I knew what he was talking about. Like the Bernstein Bears or that line from Star Wars. He shrugged. The Mandela Effect is just a trendy name for an established psychological phenomenon. Basically, our memory isn't as reliable as we think it is. They've done experiments. People develop false memories with a surprisingly low amount of suggestion. Okay, so it's not repressed memories, then what the fuck is wrong with me? Luke retained his serious therapist expression. You're in an emotionally tumultuous place right now, Ans. This town's got a lot of loaded memories for you. Some of the schizophrenics I've worked with say when they're under a lot of Are stress- Are you seriously mansplaining schizophrenia right now? I shut my eyes in frustration. Luke, I heard Micah's voice. His eyes narrowed. Really, Ansley? He snapped, nearly shouting. Do we really have to fucking keep talking about Micah? I reeled back, surprised at how much I'd upset him. His face was taut, brow wrinkled, then he softened. Listen, Ans he said sympathetically. I used to see Micah all the time. At the park, at McDonald's, even at school, I'd see a boy in a red sweater, or a boy with curly brown hair, or some kid doing the whole hunch-with-hands-in-pocket thing Micah used to do, and I'd be sure it was him. I'd hear his laugh sometimes, and I'd dream about him. I'd wake up screaming. Tommy, too. I nodded, suddenly feeling like an asshole. I didn't know how I'd convinced myself that Micah's disappearance only had a nasty effect on me. "'Remember how I was kinda into true crime?' he continued. "'You know, those six-buck paperbacks.' After Micah, I got obsessed. One time I even hiked into the trees at Alistair Park with a shovel and a magnifying glass, convinced I'd somehow be able to find Micah's shallow grave, even though I'm sure that's the first place the cops looked. I did recall Luke's fascination with murder mysteries.' It was ironic, I guess, how he'd become part of one. One that had yet to be satisfactorily solved. "'I'm sorry, man,' I said. "'You're probably right.' He gave me a half-smile. "'For the record, I could have told you that Star Wars line was wrong years ago.' I sarcastically bugged out my eyes. "'You mean time travelers aren't using cheesy sci-fi to send us messages from the future?' Luke laughed. "'Yeah, bullshit.' Everyone I meet thinks they the first to put on a Vader voice and be all, Luke, I am your father. That's not actually in the movie. We didn't talk about Micah anymore. We went to see Guardians of the Galaxy. I was happy. Being around Luke was therapeutic, meditative, cathartic. I could convince myself my dreams, Matilde, and even the glowing eyes in the park were completely harmless, and if I only relaxed, everything would be okay. I felt silly for worrying about repressed memories. Luke had always held that effect over me. With him, I was safe and protected. We talked about our respective college days, our families, my crash course in the Montessori teaching method. He told me about the FBI internship he landed for the fall. Apparently, he'd been accepted into UCSF and Harvard, but picked Georgetown Medical School over both because he wanted to be in DC. He dropped me off at my car, then turned around and headed for the freeway. He'd scheduled a meeting with his mom's doctor in Silmar. I thought his mother had died, but Luke informed me she was still hooked up to that ventilator, a prematurely aged shell of the woman she'd been before the accident that took his father and left her, mercilessly, alive. Luke was living with two ambiguous losses, Micah and his mother, both dead, neither buried. I understood why he was interested in true crime, why he was angling for a job with the FBI. He wanted answers, even if they weren't to his own questions. Driving home, the euphoria of Luke's presence began to wear off, leaving guilt in its place. He'd told me Tommy was dead, and what had I done? I'd made it all about me. I hadn't even thought to seek out Tommy's family to offer my condolences. His mother, Carol, always loved me. I think she'd wanted a daughter. I parked in front of the two-story colonial where Tommy had lived and died, across the street from Luke's grandmother's little house, Like mine, hers was the neighborhood I saw, chipping paint, unruly weeds, and a large for-sale sign stuck in the grass. She was losing her memory, Luke had told me. When he returned to Georgetown, she'd move in with her youngest daughter. Still debating the wisdom of showing up unannounced, at the door of a family I hadn't spoken to in a decade and a half, I knocked. Footsteps. The door was cracked open, and Carol Lou stared out at me. She recognized me immediately, nothing but smiles and cordiality. She invited me in, made a pot of tea, and opened a package of Costco cookies, all while chattering about her sons. Eugene was going to be a sophomore at Berkeley, she said, and Dexter just graduated from Cal Poly Pomona. Through her cheeriness, I recognized veiled grief. Mrs. Lou had been the sort of fit, stylish mom who'd share clothes with her hypothetical teenage daughter. She was still comely and slender, but deep crow's feet stretched at the corners of her eyes. Her oversized house dress nearly swallowed her, and she stopped dying her hair. Finally, she interrupted her stream of consciousness to take a sip of tea. "'Mrs. Liu, I am so, so sorry about Tommy,' I blurted out. She put down her teacup, her gregarious countenance shattered, and her eyes seemed to sink into her face. For a split second, I thought she was going to cry. Instead, she offered a graceful, strained smile. "'Thank you, Ensley,' she replied. I assumed that news had gotten to you. Luke Anderson told me. She chuckled joylessly. I'm glad he did. Tommy was a really amazing friend. I wish I'd kept in touch with him after I left the state. It's not your fault, Miss Lou. shook her head. We shouldn't have separated you, my husband and me and your parents, Ye Chow across the street. I don't think you could have done anything to stop it. My parents had been planning to move to Miami for almost a year before Micah disappeared. She narrowed her eyes. No. We all sat down and talked about it. After Michael Wall was kidnapped, we decided you and Tommy and Luke should be kept apart for a while. No phone calls, no visits, no talking online. As little contact as possible. I recalled our first few months in Miami. I'd wanted to call Luke and Tommy. I distinctly remembered asking my mom if we could visit them over Christmas break. She'd said the tickets were too expensive and long-distance calls were inconvenient, and then I'd taken her word for it. I had a hard time after Micah disappeared. Mrs. Liu nodded. I remember. You kept on insisting some horror movie ghoul had kidnapped Micah and we needed to save him. I think you rubbed off on Tommy because he started waking up crying at night, screaming about some tree monster in the park. Yi Chow threw a fit. She thought the two of you were a bad influence on her perfect little genius grandson. I got the impression Mrs. Liu didn't particularly like Luke's grandmother. "'We really did think it was for the best,' she sighed. "'I thought Tommy had moved on, whatever that means. "'He studied hard and passed the licensing exams, found a job in Arizona, bought a house. "'He was making something of himself. "'Then he started calling me in the middle of the night.' Her voice held steady, but tears formed in the corners of her eyes. I stayed silent. He couldn't sleep. When he did, he'd have hyper-real, violent
1: nightmares. He kept on asking me about Micah. Was there any new clues? Had they found his body? It was disconcerting. I mean,
0: fuck, he hadn't mentioned Micah's name for years. Fat teardrops rolled down her cheeks. I'd never heard Mrs. Lou curse before.
1: Then he... he couldn't take it anymore. He quit his job and came back here, a master's degree, and he was selling tickets at the movie theater. They diagnosed him with depression and prescribed him all these pills messing with his brain. He'd be up at nights, but we'd hear him pacing all around the house. Then he got into heroin. She sobbed.
0: I sat quietly, motionless but attentive, watching her work through her catharsis.
1: The night before, I found him at the kitchen table, he was writing something, scribbling furiously with this crazed expression on his face, in one of his old school notebooks. I asked what he was doing, he said he couldn't tell me. After, I tried to find that notebook, I never
0: could, I think he burned it. Her voice rasped and dropped a pitch, she buried her face in her hands. Numb, I sipped my tea until she straightened up, dabbed her eyes with her napkin, and looked at me expectantly. Did you find him? I asked with as much stability as I could manage. Dexter did, she said thickly. I was in the kitchen. I heard him scream. I'm so sorry. What else was there to say? God, Mrs. Lou shook her head. Now I know what Claire Wall must have gone through.
1: Everyone in town looking at her, whispering, giving her that forced, sympathetic look. I
0: hate that fucking look. Wait, the walls are still here? I asked, surprised. I was sure they'd left town. They didn't want to leave. I think they'd still held on to some hope their son was alive. That he would find his way back home. Claire died some years ago. Cancer. She just... gave up. After that, the husband sold the house. Fresh teardrops quivered, she wiped her eyes again. I felt so sorry for them.
1: Even more so now. I buried my child, they didn't even get that small consolation.
0: I don't remember driving home that day. I must have, because my car was in the driveway. Alicia was in the kitchen, and I was wandering the backyard in aimless circles. The numbness had melted into warm, throbbing panic. I was choking on all the new information forced down my throat. I thought the demon that lived in Alistair Park kidnapped Micah. I was schizophrenic. The delusion could be explained. But Tommy? Tommy had the same nightmares I'd had. Tommy believed me when I insisted Micah had been stolen by an imaginary monster. Maybe he was misdiagnosed. Maybe it was schizophrenia he was suffering from, not depression. Maybe it was induced psychosis. Horrible intrusive fantasies transferred from me to him like a virus. Years later, out of nowhere, he'd started having vivid nightmares about Micah like me. Medications did nothing to quell his torment as Haldol wasn't assuaging mine. So he'd taken to self-medication, fallen into a psychotic tailspin, twisted and tumbled until his pain became impossible to bear and his little brother found him dead in the bathtub, bled dry. Like me? Maybe Tommy remembered something I'd blotted out. Maybe he'd stayed quiet, forced it all into a safe in his subconscious and threw away the key. So he developed insomnia and began swallowing powerful antipsychotics which sliced and diced his memories until he was puking out chunks of them, scribbling in one of his old notebooks while sizing up his mother's kitchen knives. I don't know what scared me more. The past Tommy and I shared, or my future, which could have ended as a remake of his. I thought about Micah's parents, tall, bony, redhead father, small, round, brunette mother. Kind people. They'd had an older daughter, Naomi. She was a big girl, at least six feet tall, and brashly, unapologetically ugly. She'd been in high school when I met Micah, and a little more than wallpaper to me. Occasionally, she'd tromp throughout Game Boy marathons, dressed in her EMT uniform, before disappearing into her room and closing the door. I couldn't believe they'd stayed. All those years waiting, hoping their beloved baby would be returned to them. I smelled something. Rotting vegetables, cut grass, tinged with moldy sweetness. Crack! I jumped. I whipped my head towards Colonel Lewis's yard, fully expecting to lock eyes with Mathilde. I could swear I heard her sing-song robotic giggle. There was nothing. I was alone. A breeze rustled my hair. The wind had dislodged a loose brick from a pile, directed the stench of the putrefying compost heap towards my nose. It hit me, then, that I was scared of my own backyard. I went inside to find Alicia at the kitchen table on her computer. Hey, Did you get a chance to look through that mail yet? She asked. I shook my head. I'll I'll do it now. Alicia's eyes lit up. Oh, you'll never guess who called me. Who? Andy Kapersky. You know the kid who lived across the street? He said he's going to be in L.A. next month. I allowed Alicia a few minutes to regale me with tales of what Andy Kapersky had been doing for the last 15 years. Then I retreated to my room and opened my laptop. Andy must have seen my message. He had, and he responded to it. "'Hi, Ansley. Yes, I definitely remember you and Alicia. "'How have you been? I live in Seattle now. "'I saw on your profile that you're a preschool teacher. "'That's awesome. I remember you always had a really big imagination. "'As for my sister, she passed away almost 13 years ago. "'I'm sure you know she had severe autism. "'She had epilepsy, too, and a violent seizure killed her when she was only 11. "'I think about her every day. "'I hope that when I die, I'll see her in heaven.' And she'll finally tell me everything she couldn't say while she was alive. On that depressing note, it was great to hear from you. I'll be in LA for two weeks in July. I'd love to see you and your sister again, Andy. How does it feel to believe, truly believe, that you've seen a ghost? It was a weird moment for me. Definitely a difficult one to explain. I guess I felt like Neo must have, waking up in the Matrix. Andy's message was my red pill. Matilde, the hallucination was unsettling but expected. Mathilde, as an avatar for repressed trauma, had been disturbing, but at least she fit comfortably into the realm of my logic. But Mathilde the ghost? Maybe I was slipping into paranoid delusion, maybe it was my conversation with Mrs. Liu and the corroboration by Tommy of my prepubescent terrors, but the minute I learned my child tormentor had, in fact, died a child, I became convinced I was receiving messages from her disembodied spirit. It was a relief. Because if I was being accosted by the specter of Matilde Kapersky, then it wasn't all in my head. I've never been a horror fan. My brain conjures disturbing imagery out of thin air. I don't need to fan the flames by filling my skull with vengeful poltergeists and masked slashers and possessed dolls. Five minutes on Google later, I realized just how many horror fanatics there are out there. I also found online communities dedicated to cryptids, succubi, alleged ghost photos, skinwalkers, glitches in the matrix, rituals for summoning spirits, rituals for exorcising demons. I understood then why humans are drawn to ritual. Ceremony. If you do X, then Y can't hurt you. If you recite ten Hail Marys while counting plastic beads on a rosary, God forgives you for masturbating. If you throw sawdust over your shoulder while spinning around three times at midnight when Venus is in retrograde, the boy you like will kiss you before next sundown. If you walk your kids to the arcade, they'll come home safe. If I take my medication every night, I'll stay sane. The diversity in sheer mass was overwhelming, and I wasn't sure how seriously I should take advice from spooky underscore sparklebutt 1998 on Tumblr. I needed a ringer, and I knew just the ringer who'd go nuts for a little girl ghost, especially a little ghost girl who'd once lived in his house. Travis cheerfully answered my call. He'd been hoping to see me again, he said, because I seemed really cool, and as soon as I mentioned the possibility of a spirit attached to me, he promised to come right over. The two of us sat on my back porch watching the sun sink into the orange horizon as I told him the same story I'd told Luke earlier that day. He gave me his undivided attention, as Luke had, but in contrast to Luke's stoic pragmatism, Travis listened with eager intensity. It was refreshing to have a conversation with someone who wouldn't lecture me about medication. When I came to the part about the scratches on my closet door, Travis asked to see them. They look old, he said, stepping out of the closet. Yeah, I guess. I didn't really know the family who used to live here, but I think they had cats, Maybe one of their cats got trapped in the closet. I nodded. The last renters did have cats. My dad mentioned it once. The rest, though, is all in line with a presence reaching out to you. The girl. Mathilde. What was she like? I told you she was autistic, I said. She didn't talk. I'm not sure whether she was selectively mute or cognitively incapable of verbal communication, but the most they ever taught her was, like, three words of sign language. Travis nodded. So her IQ was unknown. Actually, her IQ may have been exceptionally high. She was an amazing artist, like light years beyond most kids her age. And she had a photographic memory, like she'd see someone for a second and be able to draw them perfectly, right down to the shoes they were wearing. That's cool, Travis said. Did she. Was she bullied? Abused? Anything that would keep her spirit from being at rest? I don't know. I. I don't think she was abused. Her family seemed really loving. Maybe. I, I mean, if she was, no one was telling. And kids at my school thought she was weird, but I don't remember anyone hassling her. I thought about it. If Matilde had been someone's victim, she would have been a particularly helpless one. Actually, maybe not. She just... There was something about her. Those drawings of hers, always with her name and the date. She couldn't talk, but if someone did her wrong, I suspected her drawings would have implicated them. I remembered my dad in the Corona folder. She watched people, I told Travis. She'd stare. We all assumed she was locked in her own little world. I mean, she was, in most ways. But she noticed things. And she was so quiet you'd forget she was there. Travis nodded thoughtfully. Okay. So, there were probably a lot of things she'd have wanted to communicate but couldn't. Maybe that's what she's trying to do now, give you a message. I experienced an unwelcome flashback to my earlier thought processes. My musings about repressed memories, Tommy scribbling frantic words in his notebook hours before he took his own life. I ignored it all. Okay, so you think we can contact her? I asked Travis. With your Ouija board? Travis did. But he wanted to perform the ceremony at his place to eliminate the very real risk of my shag carpet going up in flames and us giving the local firefighters a fun story to tell rookies. Travis's room had once been Mathilde's. If I disregarded the Marilyn Manson and Lady Gaga posters, I could imagine the space as it had once been. Pink bedsheets, flowery wallpaper, porcelain dolls, every flat surface littered with colored pencils and messy stacks of drawings. Out a large square window, I had a perfect view of my front yard. The setup for the ritual was a series of stereotypes to match my expectations. Travis lit black candles in a five-point formation, set up his incense burner, and turned out the lights. At the midpoint between the five candles, he laid out the Ouija board. It would have seemed more threatening if the box hadn't read Hasbro. Travis sat on the ground and beckoned for me to do the same. I positioned myself across from him. We both placed our hands on the planchard. He closed his eyes. Close your eyes and take deep breaths, he said. I did so, ignoring the cold wooden triangle under my fingers. In, out, in, out. Smoke and vanilla and rosewater inundated my sinuses, settled against my skin like sweat, etherized my racing thoughts. The vice that had clamped my brain for days loosened its hold. I swayed, I slumped, I slid down, down, down. In, out, in, out. My nose prickled, and my euphoria shattered. The scent in the room was different. Organic rot, sour grass clippings, ethane gas. I opened my eyes. There she was. Mathilde sat by Travis's side, cross-legged, pink dress folded demurely around her knees, ice-blonde tresses cascading over her shoulders. She smiled, clear blue eyes hopeful. Perhaps Travis's incense truly did possess transcendent properties because for the first time the sight of Mathilde didn't incite my anxiety. For the first time I wasn't afraid. I'd never seen her so close. Her glassy eyes reflected light like a china doll, her perfect pink lips barely parted, and her ivory skin emitted its own radiance like an overexposed photograph. Then she flickered like a hologram and disappeared. Travis opened his eyes and glanced over to me. I gave him a what now smirk. Is there anybody here with us? I looked about, half expecting Mathilde to reappear. She didn't. The planchard sprung into action, like a mouse beneath my fingers. It shot across the board. S-T-O-P. Stop, Travis said out loud. B-L-O-C-K-I-N-G-M-E. Blocking me, he finished. We looked at each other. His eyes nearly protruded and his face had lost its color. Is this Matilde Kapersky? Travis asked in a tone too agitated for my comfort. Another tug at my hands, the planchard landed on the word yes. Travis shuddered. Prove it, he said. One more time the wooden piece swung, dragging me with it. C O R O N A. The planchard went limp. Travis pulled his hands away. Corona, I stammered. It, it it was her. It was really her. Say goodbye he said to me. Entranced, I moved the wooden triangle over the word goodbye. Travis jumped up, flipped the light switch, and blew out the candles. The incense must have burned out too because the smell had greatly diminished. My head ached. I felt thousands of miles away from my body. The red pill I'd swallowed turned to acid in my stomach. Corona. The corona contracts. Mathilde's picture. It was her. Because there's no way Travis would have known the significance of the word corona. And I sure as shit wasn't moving the planchard. What freaked me out most about the situation was how freaked out Travis was. Horror fanatic Travis. Travis, who owned a Ouija board and had, according to him, used it to contact spirits in abandoned asylums and murder houses, was blanched and goosebumped and speaking in a harried falsetto. It jumped, he repeated as we sat in his living room sipping Coke with a hefty portion of leftover rum. The Planchard, it's, it's, it's never moved like that before. Every other time it just sort of crawled. All those other times, I'm pretty sure it was our collective subconscious moving the planchard, not spirits. But up there, he took a long swig of his drink. I'd felt it, too. What do you think it means? He asked. Stop blocking me. I have no fucking idea. Travis took another healthy swallow, then a deep breath. I'll break out some of my other equipment tomorrow, he concluded. See if we can get a better idea of what she's trying to tell us. Should I find some holy water? I laughed nervously. Travis didn't. If you're religious, you should. Do whatever's going to make you feel safe. It's really mind over matter with these things. The candles, the incense, all of that crap is a big come-in-we're-open signs for spirits. If you convince yourself they can't bother you, they won't. I thought about the rituals I'd perused that evening. I needed something, but it wasn't holy water. I drove to Ralph's. I picked up a can of Nesquik chocolate milk mix. Before I went to sleep, I poured a line of brown powder in front of my closet door. I woke up itching. I'd been leaning on the scraggly trunk of an oak tree, face buried in my crossed arms, and there must have been ants crawling under the bark. I was halfway through a count of a hundred. The bark didn't smell like it was supposed to. It smelled like rotting vegetables, grass clippings, and putrefaction. Oh, fuck. I stood upright and frantically surveyed my surroundings. Behind me was the play structure and the swings in the dirty sand of Alistair Park. In the distance, I could see Fifth Avenue. It was late afternoon. In front of me, the forest expanded, oak trees with long, unruly branches fighting for space, high, weedy grass, prickly bushes erupting out of a carpet of dried acorns. I knew I was dreaming. Then I realized I was in control. I was looking for something. I cautiously goose-stepped through the brush, anticipating Mathilde's appearance at any moment. I wore baggy cargo pants and red Adidas, my childhood favorite pair. My hands were small, pudgy, and soft. I heard a giggle, I jumped, but it wasn't Mathilde. It was Tommy. Twelve-year-old Tommy, wearing saggy jeans and his favorite Blink-182 t-shirt. He jumped from the sturdy, low tree branch on which he'd crouched out of sight. Laughing, he escaped into the Oakwood obstacle course. Hide and seek. We were playing hide and seek, an activity in which we often partook at Alistair Park, though we'd always stayed out of the forest. I kept walking, deeper and deeper, further and further from Fifth Avenue until dusk settled around me. I turned in a circle. I could no longer see the play structure or street and surrounded on all sides by moonlit trunks and dark canopies. I had no idea which direction I'd come from or where I was going. A flutter of panic. Then a murmuring. A syllabic, tonal rumbling. The unholy splice of a freeway overpass and a babbling baby. A glistening tangle fell from a tree. In front of me landed... A person? No. No. Definitely not. It crouched on all fours, the hind feet were clubbed, and its forepaws looked like oval slabs of blue-black flesh. Its naked body was comprised of deep wrinkles between protruding, pus filled warts. Its head was a smooth, balloon-shaped orb with no eyes or nose. Only a mouth. A wide, gaping, lipless black hole. The thing squared itself. It paced, cat-like, back and forth. Its mouth was arranged into a perfect O, producing the low-pitched, syllabic hum. "'Crack! Crack!' Flush with adrenaline, I whirled around. There were more of them, blue-black humanoids, dropping from the trees like monkeys surrounding me. The first monstrosity stretched its circular mouth, obsidian flesh regressing until its head was nothing but a spiraling concavity. It extended a long, black tongue. Then it pounced. I dove, landed hard on the uneven ground. I'd felt its fleshy paws on me, cold like clay— The others took predatory steps forward, backs arched, regimented like a pack of wolves. I leapt to my feet. I ran. I ran and ran and ran, never pausing, never looking back, twigs assaulting my arms and tearing at my clothes, dark tree trunks caught in the fragile moonlight only seconds before I'd have careened into them, the soles of my shoes slipping and shifting against layers of fallen acorns. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! My toe latched onto a root and I fell. I desperately rolled over and upright. The blue-black, hoover-mouthed creatures were gone, and I knew where I was. I was staring up at an ancient, withering oak tree with splintering skeletal limbs and a meter-thick trunk. Its cracking bark was an unhealthy whitish gray. Swollen knots arranged themselves like two spherical eyes and a thick, lecherous mouth. Scraggly roots broke through the dry, cracking earth.
1: Wanna know the way? Ask me to play, wanna know the way? Ask me to play.
0: Metallic. Robotic. Matilde. I frantically scanned my surroundings. She was nowhere to be seen. I turned back to the tree. If I had been conscious, I would have screamed. The knots were no longer knots, they were glowing orange eyes. The bloated lips parted, exposing rotting knife like teeth. The branches were no longer branches, but curling scaled tentacles. Beyond the broad, diseased trunk, coiled in tentacles, something small and red caught my eye. Like it was presenting me with a gift. The demon pulled its prize from behind its back. Micah. Micah, wearing his red sweater, eyes bloodshot and petrified, scratched and bruised. The thing's heavy extremities constricted his arms, legs, and chest. Before another creeping appendage clamped across his mouth. Before the evil orange glow became blinding. Before the trees blurred and twisted like a whirlpool, sweeping me into oscillating blackness, I heard his cries.
1: "'Help me, Ansley! Save me, Ansley! I'm sorry!'
0: June 8th, 2017 I woke up drenched in sweat. It was Too wound up to sleep, I plodded to the kitchen and brewed a pot of coffee, reconstructing the pieces of my dream. The blue-black, wrinkled cat people. Micah. I'd seen Micah. The demon had him. I'd heard Mathilde. The metallic, animatronic voice had to be hers. Even now, I can still hear that squeaky mechanic chirp. Wanna know the way? Ask me to play. Stop blocking me. We'd been playing hide-and-seek. The ghost of Mathilde wanted to lead me somewhere. She'd been sending me all the nightmares I'd been having. To help me. To help me find something. Micah. She wanted to help me find Micah. If I asked her to play, she'd show me... What? Where his body was? Some clue as to what had become of him? She'd been trying to show me the way since I'd come back home. But she couldn't because somehow I was blocking her. I puzzled over it over coffee, until I heard footsteps in the master bedroom, then running water. As pale sunlight washed through the kitchen window, my sister appeared in the hallway. "'You're up early,' she said to me as she poured herself a cup of coffee. "'Couldn't sleep,' I said. She picked up the can of chocolate milk I'd purchased. "'Shit, it's been years since I've had this stuff.' I felt nostalgic. She snorted. "'I remember you used to put it all over our room. You and her friends were ridiculous.' Just in front of the closet, I said, to trap the monster. The Nest Quick bunny saved you from being eaten alive. She shook her head and sat across from me at the table. You guys would steal my Gatorade and mix hey, it with- Leash. I cut her off. Do you remember the day Micah disappeared? Mid-sip of coffee, she coughed and sputtered. Yeah, why? She said quickly, almost nervously. She wrapped a finger around a loose strand of hair. I was just- thinking about it. I, I mean, Mom and Dad were out signing papers for the Miami house, and you were watching me all day. Did anything weird happen? Like, did Mathilde do anything? She shook her head dramatically. No, nothing with Mathilde. She never left her room, remember? You and Tommy got into Mr. Carlisle's backyard. I think you knocked something down because he came over to talk to Mom and Dad about how you guys have to be more careful. Okay, And then we went to the park, right? She nodded. You guys walked over there. And Colonel Lewis actually showed up at her place? Yeah. He said he didn't mind you guys being in the yard, but that you weren't allowed to climb on the cinder blocks. I think a big pile of them collapsed. Why are you going on about this now? I shrugged. I took the hint the conversation was over and that she wasn't going to tell me anything else useful. I wouldn't have pushed her so hard if it hadn't been for the hair twirling. Alicia's my sister. I know all her tells. She wraps her hair around her fingers when she's lying.